What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Welcome to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us as Deb talks with her guests, experts in their fields, as they share real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. Good morning, good morning. I am Deb Creer, and I am passionate about giving professionals the tools that they need to make themselves and their, their professions as successful as possible. And today, I could tell when this woman first contacted me that this was going to be an absolutely fabulous, fun-filled, informative interview today. We're going to have so much fun talking with the wonderful Mickey Williams. So welcome, Mickey. Hey, Deb. How are you doing this morning? Well, I'll be honest. I've got a little bit of the snuffles going on, but you know how that goes. So hopefully, you know, we can make it through this without anything catastrophic happening. But for my longtime listeners, I don't, yeah, that's why I did a stuffy today. But, you know, we must soldier on, you know, especially as women, right? We just have to go on and do these things. Absolutely. Well, let me tell people a little bit about you. So Mickey Williams is a CSP, which is a certified speaking professional, a member of the prestigious, and I truly mean prestigious, Speaker Hall of Fame, and a TEDx speaker, a global celebrity speaker and transformational storyteller. She was chosen as one of the best speakers in the country by Meetings and Convention Magazine, along with some little names like Tony Robbins, Bill Gates, Lou Holtz, Zig Ziglar, and Jay Leno. Mickey is an award-winning Vistage speaker, the world's leading executive organization, and a master chair of two of their peer advisory boards in Chicago. If that's not enough, this busy entrepreneur runs Speakers School, the Mickey Mouth Club, Keynote Camp, Outrageous Orators, and is an in-demand speech coach. She has spoken in every U.S. state, every Canadian province, and every continent except Antarctica, where she can't wear her stilettos. So again, Mickey, welcome to our program. Thanks, Deb. Great to be with you, snuffles and all. I know, I know. Well, you know, we just, like I said, we just go on. Um, yeah. You know, and, and as I was reading your, your book, which we'll talk about in a, in a little bit, looking at your website, all these various things, one of my first thoughts was, oh my Lord, this woman is drop-dead gorgeous. Oh. And then I'm, you know, reading more and it's like, and she is wicked smart, you know? And, and so, I mean, it was, I, I really was looking so forward to this because I'm thinking you are the total package. I mean, this is just wonderful. Well, Deb, thank you. What a great way to start with your guests. Now I like you already. I know, you know, you, and, <laughs> but you know, I'm, I'm not just buttering you up, you know, I, 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 even though I live in the South now, um, <laughs> it, well, it truly is your heart. I know, and I've learned that there are different degrees of bless your heart. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, let's go back a bit. Tell us how you got into the business of doing what you do. 
There were many roads that led to that. I am what you'd call a serial entrepreneur. And after about eight businesses, uh, I sold the last one in 1987. And every time I started a business, and I, was, uh, I enjoyed the journey. Once I get there, I get bored, which is probably why I've had so many businesses. Classic entrepreneurial challenge. Mm-hmm. And when I, uh, the last one was a health club, a dance studio that eventually turned into a health club. And I sold it. And it was the first time in my life I didn't know what was next because always when I was at the end of one career, I had my foot in the next one. Mm-hmm. And this was the time where I didn't. I did well in the sale. I took a, a year off to figure it out. And along the way, there were just those little bumps and questions and incidents that kept leading me forward. And one of them was after uh, about six months of travel, I said, okay, it's time to figure this out. Because I didn't know what it was, I decided to back into it. And I said, well, if I don't know what I want to do next, what if I just come up with the objectives of my next career? And I came up with four of them. One was I wanted to travel because I had never really done that. I was always tied to my family or facility. Mm-hmm. Two, don't laugh. It had to be glamorous. I, I come out of the end. I, I can tell that from looking at your website. <laughs> As I say, I've never met a sequin I didn't like. Mm-hmm. I, I come out of the entertainment industry. I love glamour. Number three, it had to invite, involve people because I'm a people person. And number four, I'm, uh, no financial glass ceiling. So I had these four objectives, and I, I divided my paper in half, and the objectives were on the left. And on the right, I made a list of all my talents, interests, hobbies, and passions, mm-hmm. which was very eclectic. And then I saw a match after a couple of months. And my match was, I think, you know, spas had just opened on the West Coast, uh, destination spas, and mm-hmm. I, got, and I was living in New York and Connecticut at the time. And I thought I should open up a destination spa on the East Coast because I had a background in fitness. I owned a catering business. I was in uh, entertainment. So I thought I had all the components. Mm-hmm. And I said, what don't I have? Well, I don't know the first thing about running a hotel or a spa. So I went back to college to get my master's degree in hospitality management. This is all in one year, Deb. Oh, my. And they gave me half my master's for life experience because, as I said, I run a successful food business and so mm-hmm. forth. And so I figured, you know, I'm midlife at this point. I don't want to climb the ladder and find that it's against the wrong house. So I figure I better start going out and see if I like this. So I get myself a job at one of the big hotels in PR. And quickly I realized, yes, people, yes, travel, yes, glamour. Uh-oh, no unlimited financial opportunity. Right. At that stage of life, I wanted it all. Mm-hmm. So I figured, you know, the old cliche, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I thought I was getting close. And I started networking in the hotel and hospitality. I said, well, what else do you people do besides, you know, the, the spas and the hotels? Well, we work with meeting planners. Really? What's a meeting planner? You know, these are people that get wined and dined by luxurious resorts, so they'll bring their meetings there. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, wine, dine. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm a firm believer when you want to learn about an industry, you go to their trade association. So I look it up. And I see MPI at the time, and I see ASAE. ASAE is the Association of um, uh, you know uh, Association Executives, and they headquarter in Washington D.C. So I fly to D.C. and I get certified as a convention and meeting planner, and poof, I'm out there planning meetings. And then quickly I realized this is a you know an interesting job, but it's very behind the scenes. And you can tell Deb if you've been to my website, I am not a behind the scenes. No, no, you're you're in an in front girl. Yeah, so I feel, you know, now the game we played as kids, Deb, you remember? Warm, warm, hot, hot, you're getting closer. Right, closer. right, you're getting closer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I felt like I was in that game. And so I started networking with meeting planners. Well, what else do you do besides plan meetings? 
well, we hire speakers. Uh, really? Well, what, what do you mean? What's a speaker? You know, the people who give presentations to audiences. I said, well, I've always done that, depending on the industry I was in. When I was in fitness, I would speak to, oh, they said, that's, you're an industry speaker. I said, well, what is that? Well, you didn't get paid, did you? I said, people get paid to give speeches? <laughs> so I found NSA, the National Speakers Association. I went to the New York chapter, and, and that was it. Somebody said to me, what do you know that people will pay to hear? And that was a defining question that I even ask my coaching clients these days. Mm -hmm. And I came up with a laundry list of topics, just like most new speakers do. And then I kind of started to refine it, and here I am today. That's kind of the journey to where I, how I got here. I love it, you know, and, and I love that you took the time to really hone in on what it was that at least in this part of your life you wanted to be doing. You know, so many times we're thrown into it, you know, or we inherit it, or we think, well, there's nothing better out there. And, you know, it's so it's great that you were able to really explore it. And, and like you said, warm, warm, hot, hot, bingo. <laughs> you know? Yes, um, yes and, it was a path. And it was mm -hmm. a, an interesting path because, as I said, I'd never done that before. Mm -hmm. So uh, here I am 30 years later and longest career I've ever had. I love it. Well, you know, that brings me to one of the things that you use a lot when you speak and also what you train, and it is, it's exactly what you just did. It's telling a story. So tell us why it's so important that we have these stories. I have always been uh, natural at certain things and never knew that it was a good thing or a bad thing. I remember when I first started with NSA, I always use props. Uh, to this day, I wouldn't know how to use PowerPoint if, you, if it hit me over the head. I've always used props. And I remember after about a year or two with NSA, uh, George Walter had called me up and asked if I'd speak at the next convention. And I said, what do you want me to speak on? He said, the way you use props. And I remember anecdotally, he said, what will you call it? I said, I think I'll call it the power of props, poems, and other pooferies. And George said, yeah, that's really not the kind of titles we have here at NSA. We're more about how to make a million dollars in your first year, how to sell your first book. And I remember saying, Deb, yeah, that's kind of not me. I'm more no, like the you're the poofery person. <laughs> and, and they came in droves. And But my example is that I was using props before other people did, and not because I was smarter or anything. It was just it came natural to me. Mm -hmm. And the same thing about today, people ask me about the brand that I built, and it's a pretty strong brand. And I mm -hmm. said, yeah, well, I'm an accidental brand. I was a brand before they had a term for it. Right. It was only because I paid attention to the way people remembered me. Mm -hmm. uh, she's the speaker with the big hair, or the big jewelry, or the shoes, or the she's outrageous. And I kept hearing this over and over again, and I just exploited it. And that's kind of what branding is today. So I use those two examples to lead you to the question of about storytelling. I was always a storyteller. I, I don't know whether I was brought up that way or it was a gift, or I, but I, again, consciously did not think, oh, I'll be a great business person, a great speaker if I just tell stories. I just did. And I told my own stories, my life stories, and I started to gain the momentum because people were tagging onto it. And, you know, I didn't know why. Now, today, I know why, but I didn't then. So I guess the answer is I'm, I've been a natural storyteller, and I've, now I'm faceted by it fascinated by it because of all the attention it's gotten. So I've done research mm -hmm. in neuroscience, cultural anthropology, 
uh, and several others have done the research for me, how the brain lights up when we tell a story, mm -hmm. how we don't remember data unless it's part of it. And, and there's so much science to it now. So I've taken my natural skills, put it with my research and refined it to being my lead topic today, the art and heart of storytelling. It's uh, yesterday I delivered it to 90 executives who are a mixture of everything from engineers and economists to CEOs and need to learn to tell stories. Mm -hmm. We're in a whole new place nowadays. Right. You know, and I love who you just spoke to because that is something that I, I wanted to address. The fact that not everyone is going to be the person on stage giving the, the presentation you might be presenting to your team at work, presenting to um, a networking group, you know, all these various things. We all need, if we're in business, some public speaking skills. Um, you know, I remember I went to a networking meeting one time and, you know, it was one of those stand up and give your 30 second, you know, and this, this poor woman, she had just launched her own business. She was smart. She knew exactly what she was doing. She was terrified. And, you know, so from a, from a professional standpoint, she knew her business. She did not know how to speak. And so she had it written down and bless her, bless her heart. She read it. And, you know, now she got much better over the years. And, and so I, you know, I don't want to discourage people from, you know, thinking, oh my gosh, I can't ever do that. But we all need to be a speaker at some point, even if, like I said, you know, smoke, maybe it's just for your kids or your dogs or your cats. You still have to have some of those speaking skills. You bring up two interesting points, Deb. Yesterday, when I spoke to these 90 executives, the meeting planner who had called me wanted a different topic. And this is the one that I'm most passionate about. And uh, he said, well, we're going to have some spouses there. And so I don't know if the storytelling is going to be appropriate. I said, oh, trust me on this. And the interesting thing is during the course of the presentation, I'm talking about my objectives. One of them is we're all storytellers. And if you're a parent or a homemaker and nothing else, uh, which is a great thing to be all by itself, you're mm -hmm. telling your kids stories right it's great to be a great storyteller to your kids it really applies to everyone it doesn't have to do just with the workplace and it, it it's come into its own that every single person needs to be a storyteller but here's the interesting point you you inspired I belong, uh, I, I work with Vistage, which I, I said is the world's leading executive organization. I'm one of their speakers, and I've been a chair for a while as well, a speaker for 25 years, a chair for 17. And I was at my chair world conference a couple of years ago, and I stayed afterwards to hear, uh, there was a post-convention workshop on storytelling. And I always like to learn about my own craft. And I attended it, and it actually changed the way I give my presentation. Hmm. It was about 15 min minutes into it. I realized there was some really good content, but the speaker was the worst speaker that I'd ever heard. And now when I start my storytelling presentation, I say to them, today is just not about storytelling. I can't teach you just about storytelling without giving you some basic presentation skills tip. Right. Because if you can't deliver it, then I'm not going to care how good the story is. And it really, it changed my whole presentation. It's a combination now of an old program I used to do called Speak Loudly and Carry a Big Shtick which was all presentation skills and my art and heart of storytelling. And I'm teaching them both as much as I teach the structure of a story, I teach the structure of a speech. Mm -hmm. And it was affected by the fact that I saw that, you know, Peter Drucker said, uh, uh, gosh, a culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I changed that for speaking. I say delivery eats content for breakfast. Right. You have to 
know how to deliver the story, not just have them. Mm-hmm. You know, and we've all seen that happen where somebody has great content, but they don't know how to deliver it. Exactly. Um, you know, and, and, and again, whether it's, you know, that heaven forbid they, they're in that position of actually being a speaker up on a stage, you know, or something like, you know, giving a, a talk to a, a small group, all of those various things. Um, I worked with a CEO one time and he, oh, he knew his stuff. He really, really knew his stuff. And he knew he was not a great public speaker. Um, you know, and, and so we worked with him on it because he had to do that. He was the CEO. One of the things he also knew was there were times where he, the smartest thing was to turn it over to somebody else, um, you know, because it, 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 that, that was just not his bailiwick on occasion. But, you know, it, it, in many cases, it takes a, a leap of courage to admit that you need help, you know, and, or, you know, you know, our egos like to think, well, you know, I, I killed it at the last cocktail party. Why can't I, you know, do this all the time? It does take some other skills. So, you know, talk, and as I've said, everybody needs these skills. So let's kind of go through just a handful of the things that really do help someone become a better speaker. You know, the other interesting thing that you said often, you know, I get called weekly for coaching, for my Mm -hmm. speaker coaching. And people usually start by saying, I'm a pretty good speaker and I'd like to, and I usually, I think it's when my New York comes out, Deb, and I say, no, you're probably not a good speaker. You're probably a good talker. And herein lies the challenge because we have this God-given gift of talking. We think we're speaking. And speaking is a definitive craft. I often say I know how to play tennis. That doesn't mean I'm good at it. Talking is just like knowing how to play tennis. But Mm -hmm. being a great tennis player is like working at the craft of speaking and storytelling. And that's the hardest thing to get people to understand. You know, if they think if they've got a great personality and they've got some knowledge, they're a great speaker. And then you know as well as I do, that's not the case at all. There is, and by the end of the program, people are always amazed at the amount of craft that goes into it. Mm -hmm. Everything from... Uh, everything from how to use your voice to when to move your eyes, how to make a story more impactful by the choice of words, by the different tonality and inflection and your pacing and the use of silence. And, and there's so many skills to being a great storyteller. One of the first things I tell people to do is to collect their stories. Because people will often say, I have no stories, which actually cracks me up. Right. Like stories. nothing ever happens to them. We have stories every minute of every day. And yesterday's program, here was a new one. I I took a lift to get to the uh, venue and I was talking with the lift driver. You know, I gather stories by just talking to people. And, uh, you know, he looked very professional and he told me that he was just laid off. His company merged and he was the marketing, uh, chief marketing officer. And I said, oh, my goodness, that's wonderful. Do you, are you looking for a job? He said, yes, of course I am. I said, well, do you have a business card? He said, no, I don't. I said, well, as soon as I get out of this car, you go over to Staples and get yourself one. I said, put your name and number on a piece of paper for me because I'm going to be speaking to 90 executives. Mm. He handed it to me. And during the course of my presentation, just as an example of how stories happen and what ha- leads us to stories and from stories, I told him about, and you know what? Three CEOs came up to me at the end to ask for his number. Holy cow. Yeah, exactly. One of my absolutely favorite anecdotes about this, and this all relates to uh, your question of how do we find our stories and then what do we do with them, was I was going to an NSA convention. 
And I was giving this presentation. I was first up to be doing this presentation. And it was in Washington, D.C. You know what it's like. There were 3,000 speakers checking in. And I walk up to the front desk, and he gives me my room key. I dash down to my room because I got to go give this speech. And my room was horrible. It was like in the bowels of the hotel. Oh. I run back up to the front desk, and he's, he's wearing a name tag, and it says Bashir. And I said, Bashir, I need a new room, and I need it fast because I've got to go give a speech, but I'm going to be here for a whole week, and the room that I'm in is really terrible. And he was very kind, just shaking his head. Oh, I'm sorry, ma'am. We are very full. There are no more rooms. Bashir, please look for me. Oh, no, ma'am. We are full. Bashir, please. Okay, so now I've been so tenacious. He starts looking at his computer. He's not looking at me. He's typing away, and I'm making conversation. So, Bashir, have you worked here for a long time? Oh, yes, ma'am. I've been here 10 years. And where are you from, Bashir? I am from Pakistan, ma'am. And he looks up at me. That doesn't look good, ma'am. Oh, keep looking, Bashir. And Bashir, uh, you have a very interesting name. Does it mean anything from your country? He said, oh, yes, ma'am, it does. I said, well, what does your name mean, Bashir? He's still looking at the computer, Deb. He says, it means bearer of good news. <laughs> He looks up from the computer. We lock eyes. I get a new room. I go to give my speech on the art and heart of storytelling to the speakers, and I open with that story. Right. And the example being stories happen almost in the moment. We're just not paying attention, and every one of them has some kind of message or some kind of humor or some kind of poignancy that's relevant to other people's because here's the deal. Why are stories so powerful? Because we put ourselves in them. Right. We look at them through the lens of our own experiences. Stories don't tell us how to think. Stories just give us something to think upon. Mm -hmm. And if I'm talking about something that's about volunteerism in my experience, you're sitting there, you don't know it, but your brain lights up and somewhere in there it's going, oh, I should volunteer, I don't. Well, I did last week, that was great. I don't have time to volunteer. Maybe I should get my kids and volunteer. Maybe I... And that's what happens. We just go to and from our own experiences, and we get engaged in people's stories. If we're not telling stories, we're not speaking. We're lecturing. Right. That's yeah. what I tell my coaching clients all the time. Well, and a great example of exactly what you were saying is you could have, you know, with volunteering, you could have talked about the importance of how many hours it is to donate, um, you know, how companies donate X number of dollars. You, know, you could have just stuffed it full of numbers. That would have been all lecture. Yeah. And everybody would be going, oh, you know, and, and you'd be looking out and he'd be sound asleep. Now you can kind of put those in you, you, because there are, you know, sometimes numbers really do matter. Well, no, here's what I tell you. You have two choices and only okay. two. Invest me through story to care about your data. How do you do that? You ah. either tell a story first and then present the data because okay. now invested in it, or you embed the data in the story. Okay. But it does not stand alone unless you do one of those two things. Right. And trust me, my clients are engineers and IT professionals and mm -hmm. people who work with data all the time. I just work with a, an, a security expert. And they're all a little nervous about the fact that they know I'm going to share with them the skills of teaching storytelling because they're going, you know, I got to present data. I got, and I get it. I'm very sensitive to it. And I've learned because most of my clients have to present data. Mm -hmm. Most of my clients are executives or speakers. Right. And I teach them the methods of how to do it either through story first or embedded in the story. You know, I have one guy who's a great speaker, and 
one of the things he talks about is that he segues from his stories right to lecture because that's the way he always did it. And I always say to him, you know, you're, you just left heart and you went to head. And as soon as you go to head, you've taken me out of heart and I've lost it. Mm -hmm. Because everybody's responsibility when they're giving a presentation is to take them on some kind of emotional ride. And you say that to someone who deals with data, they don't get it. But here's my phrase. You're in the emotional transportation business. Mm -hmm. It is your responsibility to engage people through heart in order for them to grasp it through head. And that's, you know, that's the old cliche from sales. You know, people buy on emotion and rationalize on logic. And if you just present logic to me, I can argue with you in my head. Oh, I read a different article. Somebody else told me else. Oh, I read a book about that. But if you make me feel something about your product or your service or your idea, that engages me to the point that stories inspire action. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly as you said, because we put ourselves there or if not ourselves, somebody that we know. It's like, oh, wow, that happened to my mom or my husband or my coworker. And, and so then we, we did. We immediately connected. And because we connected, it, you're, as you said, we're invested in it. We're like, oh, wow, you know, this, this makes sense to us. And, you know, I loved it that you said earlier that your brain lights up. And, and it does. I mean, from a, you know, if, if somebody was, you know, running little sensor, I'm drawing a e, not EKG, um, whatever it is, if they're checking your brain waves, when you're really paying attention, your brain is much more active and that's the lighting up process. Right. And that's a scientific. So we, we don't argue with the science on that part. I know they, they do have their numbers and you know, they, they make sense. Yeah, well, it, it gives credibility to what I'm teaching people to know that there's two sciences that back this up and it's mm -hmm. not bad. It's something we always did and then we went away from it. We divided into that left brain, right brain camp and, and that became our excuse for what we did or what we didn't do. Mm -hmm. I see, you know, all uh, my clients range in so many different personalities and skill sets and, and occupations that I get to see and experience a lot of the different challenges around storytelling, around giving presentations. And you come to a conclusion after a while because you see common threads. And, you know, even with creating speeches, people have really strange ways. I hear things like, well, I just wing it, which is like to me nails on a chalkboard. There's structure to everything and structure frees creativity. There's structure to a story and there's structure to a presentation. The idea is that the audience doesn't see the structure and they just see it, that it's very conversational because giving a presentation or telling a story is, is no matter whether I have 14 people or 14,000, I'm speaking to one person at a time. I'm mm -hmm. having a conversation with one person at a time. And stories make that more conversational. Right. You know, and, and, and that's, you know, that is kind of one of the things, too, where you're looking at one person in the audience. Now, you know, obviously you're shifting your focus. It's not stare at that poor person. Um, but it, we've all seen, you know, we've, the, the speaker that looks above our head or looks down at their notes or, you know, all these various things. And whether they have a fear of making eye contact or they just don't realize how important it is, or they're not prepared, or all these various things, that's one of the ways where they very quickly lose us. Did you ever hear someone tell a story, and, and you're so bored, Deb? It's because the story is going nowhere. Right. 
you look at a very simple version of what a story looks like, it's also known as the hero's journey. And this, you could Google this to the ends of time. There's so many variations on it. Well, the hero is typically the protagonist, the person the story is about. Mm-hmm. The majority of the time it's about. And this is the same way they make movies and TV shows. And you picture if I was drawing this on a flip chart, it would look like a mountain. And the hero is down at that left corner of the mountain, the the protagonist, and you're telling the story and the story has movement. It's going somewhere. It's not overladen with adjectives or facts. It's just moving along and keeping me interested, which is what a good TV show or movie does. Mm -hmm. At the top, the apex or the top of the mountain, that's where something happens. An event, a dynamic, a change mm-hmm. that twists everything. And now you're intrigued that you, you don't know what's going to happen as a result of that. And so coming down that mountain, you're still engaged till you get to the bottom of the mountain where you've gotten that, aha, oh, that's what it meant. That's what it means to me, or that's what I should do. So that is kind of the, the scope of what a story looks like. You know, somebody yesterday asked me, asked me, how do you know if you've got too many words? And I said, that's, and it's a common error. It, one of the things that I do when I'm coaching people is what I call cutting the fat. Mm-hmm. I don't want anybody to have five seconds to look at a watch or a cell phone. Therefore, every single word I have must be relevant and must have a movement to it. Everything that you say moves the story forward or you don't need it. Mm-hmm. And then you just have to have just enough descriptive words to make people get a visual without being overly prescriptive. For example, somebody talking about uh, a story and they're saying, well, yeah, I got to the base of my stairs. I walked up step by step. I walked down the hall. I came to the door and I put my hand on the doorknob and I opened the door. Come on. I don't need any of that. Right. (laughs) Right. So that's what I mean about too much. But in another case where I'm telling one of my signature stories, I say, it was a hot, blazing sun. I was tired. I was dirty. I was blistered. Those are, are words that give power to the story. They're not mm-hmm. details that are irrelevant. Can you see the difference? Right. And, and that helps us to put ourselves there. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's like reading that good book. If you close your eyes, you're there. And so if somebody's describing it as a hot, blistering sun, I can feel that on my shoulders Absolutely. unless they say it was a hot, blistering sun. Yeah. Well, that's a, the other thing is the power of the voice. Mm-hmm. There are seven elements to our voice leaving out inflection that most people don't use. If I was very, very excited about something, very excited, I couldn't wait to tell you, I'd probably speak very fast. Mm-hmm. If I just won an award, I'd probably tell you very loud. Right. If I wanted you to learn something very specifically, I would probably speak very slowly. Mm-hmm. And if we just lost a member of our team, I'd probably say it in a very soft voice. And then out of those four, the fifth one is what we call neutral, which is our regular speaking voice. And the Mm -hmm. most powerful thing of all that most of us know is silence. And people aren't even aware that they don't even use those elements that every single person has when they're telling a story, when they're giving a presentation, is to look at it, you know, from the anatomy side of it. When am I speaking faster? When am I speaking slower? When am I using silence? When am I using variations of the, as again, inflections is a whole other thing. But just that dynamic of those six things can change a story or a presentation. Right. Well, and it's important that you have a mix of them. You know, I'm from Colorado, and so I do speak fairly quickly, fast, whatever we want to call it. And, you know, I get down here to the south, 
some lovely person listened to my radio program and he comes up to me at a networking event and he said, I love your program, but darling, you got to slow down. <laughs> and I do get, I get very excited when I talk to my guests and because I get excited, as you said, we speak faster as women, our voice pitch goes up, you know, and we certainly don't want to be making the dog scream next door. And so I had for years a note on my computer that said, slow down, just to remind myself to, to slow down. Now, it's, you know, I still get excited, clearly, and people, but because I can have the different inflections, that's where it really does catch people's attention. Yeah, slowing down is a myth. Uh, slowing down is low energy. People who talk fast are usually more accepted by an audience than people who talk slowly. That's been my experience. Talking faster is more about energy than it is anything. And if anybody had a choice between the two, I think they would always go with fast. You're always going to have an exception of a Southerner or someone else who, who listens slowly. Right. And you can't adjust to that. But in my experience and all the speeches that I've given, the people I've watched, the people I coach, better to be energetic speaking faster than to be very slow and waiting for people to finish a sentence. Well, because then what happens is they finish it for you. Well, that's another whole area. <laughs> you know, and and it takes practice. You know, that let's let's you know be very clear about this. And that is one of the things that you work with people on. And you mentioned it, winging it is not a good skill set. Now, you do have to be able to adapt to something. You know, well, say you're on your feet. It's great. Right. Take an improv class that certainly helps. Mm -hmm. There's a big difference. You know, I run speaker schools and in speaker schools, you know, I keep it small. It's about average 10 to 12 people. So everybody gets their opportunity to do things. And on day one, we do all skill set. And day two is all video one-on-one -on -one coaching. And day three is business development. But even in speaker school, I'll have a mix of a, a comedian from New York, corporate executives, professional speakers, aspiring speakers, and everybody comes with a different objective. You know, right. one of the CEOs came, he, he runs a nonprofit. He's got to go out and raise money. He's got to be powerful and open people's hearts and touch their heartstrings to get them to use money. The comedian is using uh, her speaking skills for a whole different purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, and so everybody comes with a different reason, but if you strip all that away, everybody's there for the same reason to perfect their presentation skills, to get rid of those ums and the so's, and to learn how to construct a story so it's inspiring and moves people to action. Because that's what I tell people all the time. Stories move people to action. And perfect example, January of this year, <clears throat> I was at my dance class, and I was, I was a very strenuous dance class. The week before, I had been in California and got an executive physical, passed everything with flying colors. A week later, I'm taking two dance classes and having chest pains. I stop, and I take an aspirin. I'm still having chest pains. I go home. I take another aspirin, still having chest pains. I meditate. Then I go to Dr. Google. And finally, after about an hour, I think, okay, this is getting stupid. You better get yourself to the emergency room. So I get myself there, and I come in, and as soon as you tell them you have chest pain, they take you first, and they give me an EKG, which I had a week earlier, and they said, that's fine. I'm still sitting there. And then they take me a little while longer. It turns out my markers were really high, and the next thing I know, I'm in intensive care in the cardiac unit Oy. for three days as they give me every test known for a heart attack, mm -hmm. which turns out I did not have. But a virus had attacked my heart. Oh, wow. 
at the time I was wearing a Fitbit because I mm -hmm. work out a lot, I dance mm -hmm. a lot. And the doctor said, maybe you should get a polar watch because it comes with a chest strap. And when you work out, it'll be a lot more accurate reading. Hmm. So I do that. Now I got a Fitbit, a polar watch, and a chest strap. And I'm monitoring my heart rate as time goes on. And then one day, a friend of mine's wearing an Apple watch. And I look at it and I said, oh, does that measure heart rate? Oh, yeah. Not only measures heart rate, an alarm goes off. It, it tells you what you're breathing. I said, no kidding. So I thought about it, and then I was passing the Apple store one day, and I went in, and I had them show it to me, and they told me all the particulars, and that was really interesting. Another week or so, I see someone else wearing it. This time, I go online. I check out the Apple Watch, and six months later, I'm still using my Fitbit, my Polar Watch, and my strap, and just got a lot of info on the Apple Watch, but did nothing until one morning. Six months later, I'm listening to the news as I'm getting dressed, and it was about a woman, a nurse whose uh, teen daughter had an Apple Watch and the alarm was going off. And the mother, being a nurse, was kind of casual about it. Said, you know, it's just a watch. It's probably malfunctioning. Mm -hmm. well, the watch was relentless. Yes. And hello, hello, hello. The mother took the daughter to the emergency room and saved her life. Oh, my. And guess what I did that afternoon? You got the watch. I bought my Apple Watch. Mm -hmm. That's a story right out of my speech because stories inspire action. Six months of research and asking people and going to the store, nothing. One 30-second anecdote, I was at the store. Mm -hmm. That's the power of story. You know, and I, as you said, we all have those stories. We make decisions based on those stories. Um, you know, and, and as you were telling it, I was thinking the same thing. Oh, yeah, I've got my Garmin watch and yanny, yanny. And then it was like, oh. And, and so it, it sucked me right back in when you mentioned that very specific incident. So, you know, it's, and, and that was a very simple, basic incident. But that's where, you know, we, we tend to, to forget that, you know, those simple things really are what catch people's attention. And then you kind of build around that. I had a gentleman in speaker school from Virginia, and he had sold his business and started a new company called Leg Up Farms, which was uh, for special needs children to interact with farm animals. And on day two of speaker school, when he had to get up and give his presentation, he started with his, my name is Lou Castriata. I'm from Knoxville, Virginia. I'm the CEO of Leg Up Farms, and we're on about 340 acres and employ about 80 people. And then I hit my blah, blah, blah button, right. and I said, Lou. Who cares? Tell me about the first day that Mr. and Mrs. Davis arrived at Leg Up Farms and their little daughter Susie broke away and ran down the hill and wrapped her arms around a little baby lamb and for the first time in her seven-year-old autistic life uttered her first words. And everybody went, oh. Yeah, everybody did go. Yeah, because that's the power of that little 15-second or whatever story put in an anecdote. An anecdote is a short story that will move people to action more than all the data in the world that you can present. On the other side of it, a good friend of mine, uh, Brian Bolio, runs ITR. It's a company of economists. He puts all his economists through my speaker school. And the first time I ever heard Brian, and let's face it, economists may not think it's a, you may not think it's the sexiest subject in the world unless you're another economist, but he's presenting the data to a group of executives and he started with a story about his daughter buying her first home 
Now, I didn't stop to think is, why is this economist telling me the story about the daughters buying a first home? I was just engaged in the story right. as everybody in the audience was because they're either thinking, oh, my kid's going to buy one. Oh, I remember when I bought one. Oh, it was a great experience. Again, people looking through the lens of their own experience. And after Brian finished the story, he presented the data around the real estate and construction industry because it was during the recession and that was hardest hit. And so that goes back to my phrase, Deb, invest me through story to care about the data. Mm-hmm. And if he had just started with the data, I wouldn't have been interested at all. Right. But the engagement through the story that I put myself in left me open to caring about what he was going to present next. And mm-hmm. I have story after story that, you know, I use my presentations to illustrate, to inspire people to start collecting their stories. Somebody said to me yesterday, well, I have lots of stories, but I don't know if they have any points. Well, every story has a point. Or you can tweak it to make a point. Right. I told them a story about my best friend, Kathy, who, and I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but the essence of it is uh, a bunch of guys playing basketball. One of them ran to the curb and asked her for a ride in the Ferrari and he got it. And it was just a regular story about my friend, Kathy. Well, when I've embellished the story and created the story and added words and structure, it's a story about taking a risk. And that boy got the ride because he asked and nobody else asked first. And then I said to him, what else could that story be about? And the audience members said, well, it could be about friendship because you and Kathy were friends for 30 years. Yes, it could. It could be a metaphor for the Ferrari being what's your Ferrari? What's that one thing you want to own or do in your life? So I was just showing them how every story they have can have a point. And just to start what I call a story file, start collecting your stories and then keyword your story. So you'd never have to write it out and you never have to memorize it because you've lived it. Mm-hmm. For example, that Ferrari story. My keyword is Ferrari. It's the only Ferrari story I have. Right. If I see the Ferrari, I'm going to tell that story, and it's always going to be different, and it's always going to be fresh. Mm-hmm. I never have to write out a speech because I can keyword my whole presentation. And that's what I want people to learn how to do and not be afraid of doing it because everybody can be a great speaker if they become a great storyteller. Right. You mentioned two words that I, I wanted to talk more about. Tweaking and embellishing on stories. Yep. Uh, you know, now, we're definitely not saying you can lie. And, you know, because uh, let's be honest, we have enough stories, we shouldn't have to lie. But it's okay to tweak them and kind of nudge them a bit to make your point. It, that's a great observation, Deb. It's no different than a book, a movie, or a TV. Those are all means of communication, and every one of them is very different. Mm -hmm. And the same story that was in a book is different when it's put onto TV or made into a movie because they're different modes of communication. And when I say tweak or embellish, it's to fit the situation, Mm -hmm. to deliver the most powerful speech. I might have to use words, or I might have to make it a time of day that didn't fit the, the element that I was talking about. I'm never lying, ever, never lying. Mm-hmm. I'm, but I'm always tweaking and embellishing to fit the mode of communication or the audience that I'm speaking to. And that's what's important when I say that. Right. And it also helps keep it fresh. Um, you know, because when we're telling those stories, if we just tell them ad nauseum, you know, over and over, then we start sounding stale. Um, I was in a, a college uh, theater group when I, way back when I was in college. And we had a, a this... Uh, thing where the entire month of January, we did a performance a day. It was the same performance. We went to various elementary schools. So same performance, same play. And, but we added something different every single time. 
just to keep it fresh for us. Because even though, you know, these were kids, actually, I shouldn't say even though these were kids, sometimes it's hardest to keep kids' attention. Having that little something different kept us on our toes. And sometimes the director wouldn't tell anybody else what was happening. He'd just tell the one person, hey, add this line. You know, and, and so we were allowed to ad lib a little bit and some things like that. But because we had something different every single time, it kept us on our toes. And therefore, it made it more interesting to the people who were listening. One of my coaching clients is a former uh, NFL player, Jeff Novak. And uh, Jeff hired me for my keynote camp. I've been running keynote camp for about 15 years. And it's a one-on-one uh, where I designed someone's entire speech. Mm-hmm. And Jeff, being an NFL player, we had lots of stories to tell. And one of the things that you could do, in, and when I help someone create their own speech, is you can plug in different stories for different occasions. And he had so many. And depending on the speech and what it was delivering in terms of the message and the point to the audience, you just swap out one story for another. Right. That's why I encourage people to start a story file. I encourage companies to start what I call story share, mm-hmm. where every month they have a meeting or every week, however they want to do it, where they get around, whether it's a management team or by division, and they share stories. So they become company stories, not just individual stories. Because stories create brand, and brand creates culture. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lot of companies are about. You know, most of my world now is in the executive space, working with executives and or speakers and the occasional one-offs, as I call them, like the comedian from New York. Mm-hmm. But there, there's a commonality there. If you strip away what they do, whether they're a CEO or whether they're a speaker or a homemaker, the elements of being a great storyteller and giving great presentations are all the same. Right. They're all the same. And mastering that is, like you said earlier, it's practice. Because mm-hmm. it is a craft. You don't become a better tennis player just because you take a lesson. You mm-hmm. have to practice it to get better. You practice the skills of that. And that's what I do in speaker school or if I'm doing keynote camp. I also run something called Accountability Academy, which is a year-long program. And people they get me as a coach four times a year. And it was interesting how all these things evolved because at first I've been doing speaker school for, I don't know, 30 years probably in different industries. And then somebody said to me, well, I've done speaker school, but I'd love some individual help geared just to me. Can you coach me? And that was how my coaching business was formed. Mm -hmm. Then someone after the coaching business said, well, I would love to have you coach me, but I I don't know if I can afford it on a regular basis. Can we spread it out over a year? Hence, Accountability Academy. And then the same person goes, well, I've taken all of your things and I still don't have a speech. Can you design a speech for me? Then came keynote camp. And then lastly, which was really interesting, one of my clients who hired me one time and right afterwards, a week later, he called me up and said, Mick, I need a leadership speaker. Can you get me one real quick? And so I got him a leadership speaker. He didn't look at a video. He didn't interview him. He just took me on my word. And I thought, wow, that's a unique thing. What if my clients trust me so much because I know their industry and I know their people that will just take my word. And hence, I formed like an almost reverse speakers bureau Mm -hmm. called Outrageous Orators, where I get to book people, but basically through my own clients and almost sight and scene. They just take my word for it. They give me their three variations on budget and I book the people. So my entire business, all those things now, Deb, are under the umbrella of the Mickey Mouse Club. And they all came about because people at different levels started to recognize the importance of speaking and storytelling to get what they want, be it in the business world or being as a professional speaker. And Mm -hmm. I'm passionate about it, as I think you could tell. Right. 
Well, and speaking of, you know, another accomplishment, you have written this great book. It's called Glamour and the Geek. Mm-hmm. It is co-written with Dave Nelson. And if everybody couldn't tell already, who's the glamour and who's the geek? <laughs> I hope. <laughs> you know, and as I was reading this book, I loved, first of all, I loved how you wrote it. Every other chapter. So um, Dave would write a chapter, then you would write a chapter. No, no, page. I would write a page. He oh, that's his, yeah. his. Sometimes his were just a little, well, but they were short, very short. And so this was a very fast read. Yes. And it's a read you could use all year. Somebody else mm-hmm. who just stood up the other day at a meeting and said he bought 40 copies for all his Vistage members. He said, because one page is social media, one page is presentation or mm-hmm. story. So you could really just pick it up and learn a different skill every day for a whole year. Right. You know, and, and you, you know, it's, as you mentioned, it's skills, you know, and, and that's one of the things that I loved about it. And so I'm going to you know, talk about some of the, the topics that you had in there. Let's talk about one of the biggies, humor. Yeah. When, you know, because there are some people, oh no, you can never use humor. And then of course we see unfortunate uses of humor, but tell us why it is. And clearly we, we get the humor, you know, because we've been, you know, kind of laughing our way through this, but why is it so important to use humor? But more importantly, how do we use it? Interesting that people often, when I talk about that, they'll say, well, I'm not funny. And I go, you're right. I don't expect you to be funny. Jerry Seinfeld is funny. You're not funny. I want you to use humor. There's Mm -hmm. a big difference between being funny and using humor. Humor are things that happen to us in everyday life, (laughs) which is really the way Seinfeld made his humor. Right. You know, and in our speaking industry, you know, but a lot of your listeners may not, we often say, do you have to use humor? And the answer is only if you want to get paid. Yes, you have to use humor because it's it's a a diffuser. Mm -hmm. It's also a break for people. They can't stay in left brain thinking all the time, even though our two brains are mesh now that we know that in terms of storytelling, but they need that release and that release. And sometimes it's to counter a very sad story. Then you break it through the humor, or sometimes it's the break that people need because you presented so much information. Mm -hmm. So it's a nice cadence when you do a presentation. And one of the things after I teach people the template of a presentation is how to go back in and look at the various places where humor is needed and then intercept them or insert them rather. And humor happens every day. I saw a man, a homeless guy in the street with a cardboard sign that says, please contribute to the Jack Daniels Research Foundation. I love it. Yeah. And well, again, I talk about creating a story share or a story file. I talk about creating a humor file. Every day, if something laughs, collect it. Don't judge it. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is too many people will laugh and say, well, what am I going to collect this for? When am I going to use this? And that's that little head trash that we all have. Collect it, don't judge it. And then when you have to give a presentation, you'll have an entire humor file that you can go back to and plug some of these things in because they happen every single day. Mm-hmm. And again, in my presentation, I, uh, I do a whole section on humor. And I talk about the fact that you have to use humor because it's what an audience needs for a break or it counters something heavy and it takes them out of too much logic or too much information. You know, it's kind of like the, the old TV show, MASH. They had to have humor in order to survive. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and there really is humor everywhere. You know, I, I posted on Facebook that, you know, a couple days ago, I'm in urgent care for my snuffles and my phone rings and it's my husband. And he actually knew I was in urgent care. You know, I had, had let him know that, but not to panic. And, and so my phone rings and I figure he's just, you know, checking to see how I'm doing, which he very nicely said, you know, how are you doing? And then he said, 
I've been in a fender bender. I'm like, oh, you know, and so then I said, oh my gosh, do I need to, to come now? And he said, no, 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 you know, and, and, um, and it really was just a fender bender. But what the person who hit him told the police officer was, if he had just run the red light, she wouldn't have hit him. You can't make that stuff up. <laughs> and when I posted that on Facebook, it was like, oh my gosh, you know, and, and, you know, and, and so we do, we have humor everywhere. But the, the key is to, to use it correctly. And I think that's one of the biggest fears that people have is we have to be politically correct. We might offend people. And, you know, and so how do people get past that? So it's quite obvious what could be offensive or not. I would think that uh, any person that has humor, they can self-check on, is this going to offend a minority or a gender or a political view? So it's to stay away from all those things. You know, the old expression, when in doubt, leave it out. Right. That's kind of, you know, it's what cost Kevin Hart his uh, Oscar bidding. I heard this morning yesterday he got the gig. Today he's lost it. because. From like a tw- from you know comments he made eight years ago. Now yeah. that's another know, story. But the point right. is, those things that you have to be sensitive to can mm-hmm. come and offend people in one line or a whole story. And I'm always double checking that, and I'm mm-hmm. very sensitive to that. And I would just challenge most people to be aware. That's all. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's where the practice comes back in. You know, when when you're saying it. I, I tell you, know, like when I train people on social media, I tell them if you're about to type something. And your your little inner voice goes, then don't you know? Don't hit send or share or whatever it is. We do have those inner voices, um, and but part of it is knowing your audience. And so, talk to us a little bit about knowing your audience. And I love the fact that in your book you say you know, tailor or not tailor, have every presentation have something in it that is specific for them. So it's not just that canned presentation again. No, uh, if if people use the techniques that I teach them, they will never. In thirty years, I've never. I've told the same stories over and over and mm-hmm. over again. He's ever accused me of a canned presentation. It's the technique that I teach that mm-hmm. teaches people how to do it, so it never sounds canned. It's using keywords. It's telling mm-hmm. stories. It's not memorizing. It's not writing out. Uh, there are so many different techniques, but it all boils down to the same thing. It needs to sound very conversational. If you mm-hmm. use real stories, that's the key to success in giving a presentation. Right. That's my experience. You know, and I loved watching your videos. Um, and the, the Ferrari one was actually one that I watched. And, and so that was great. And one of the things that I noticed was you do use hand motions and, you know, and, and you walk through your audience. And, and for some people, that's a little bit scary, especially if they're thinking, no, I need to hide behind the podium. And if they're thinking I need to hide behind the podium, they shouldn't be giving the speech. <laughs> you know, that's, but it, it is all about seeming and not seeming, being natural with it. Yeah, and you have to, you know, I'm coaching people. Everybody's different. So there's no template. There's a, there's a, a template for everyone to use, but then it's customized to right. the individual's personality and knowledge and presentation style. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, there is structure. There's a template. But other than that, you have to work to everybody's strengths and what they're most comfortable with. You know, I'm a professional speaker. For me to walk in the audience is not a big deal. That would terrify some people. Mm-hmm. I would never let anybody stand behind a lectern ever uh, when they're standing on stage. 
I would make sure that they know when they move and how often they move. I teach uh, power positions, when to stand, when to move, when to use hands, when to use eyes. There are so many components, as you know, to the skill of professional speaking or giving good presentations, even if you're not a professional, and using stories, which everybody could do. But right. there's, there's methods, there's mm -hmm. techniques to perfect them. Just because we talk doesn't mean we speak. Just because we have stories doesn't mean we know how to deliver them. Mm -hmm. you know, and that's going to bring me to my final point that really was something that I got through your book and, and you know, obviously talking with you, and that's that you have to become unique. You know, you're clearly unique. Um, I love, you know, you, you've got this trademark, uh, and, you know, that's a totally different subject that people just need to read in your book, the importance of trademarking things. But you say, be outrageous. It's the only place that isn't crowded. You know, and, and we do have to be unique. We can't be copying somebody else. But, you know, talk to us just a little bit more about, you know, how, how do we find that? Because especially for a first-time speaker or a new CEO or maybe they're the new leader of their business group, whatever, how do they find themselves is maybe the easiest way to put that. I believe everybody is unique. Everybody is special. You just have to find that. Uh, if you can't find it yourself, then you do hire a coach. But you find it and then you exploit it. And I use the word exploit in a really good way. That's what mm -hmm. I said, how I found my brand. I exploited what everybody said about me, knew about me. It doesn't have to be. You don't have to be the smartest person on the block or the funniest or anything. There are lots of ways to brand yourself in different ways. And, and that's, again, going back to uniqueness. And it's not a matter of, of deciding I'm going to be this. It's a matter of who you are. I think if you strip away all the skills that I've talked about, it comes down to authenticity. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest success you can have as a speaker or as a storyteller, that you're speaking as you and you're not getting up and changing into your title, your job description. Or as I call it, you become a speaker man or a speaker woman. <laughs> da, 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 da. Oh, no, yeah, that's ridiculous. I mean, one of the keys to my success has been that this is who I am. And if you, you don't like it or me for whatever reason, that's okay too. But right. I'm changing to adapt to other thing, what I am authentically. And I think that's the, the key that wraps up this whole conversation. All the skills in the world won't make a difference if you can't just relax into it and be okay with who you are. And I right. think- that's a hard thing for a lot of the executives that I work with to mm -hmm. let go of the title and just become the father or the mother or the, the wife or the sister mm -hmm. when you're talking. So that's how you relate to other people. And that's really the greatest success skill. Right. And it is. It's about relating to other people. Because when you do, then you matter to them and what you're saying matters to them. Absolutely. Well, oh my gosh, Mickey, I didn't eat, I still have one, two, three, four, six, 10 things on my list of notes that we didn't even get to, which means we obviously have to have you on again. So we'll get that set up at some point, but tell people how they find you and connect with you online. Uh, easy. Just go to my website, mickeywilliams.com, M-I-K-K-I williams.com. Uh, and from there, you can go everywhere. You could email me. It'll take you to my TED Talk. Uh, it'll uh, take you to pages that have all the different things I talked about, Keynote Camp and Mickey Mouth Club, et cetera. So uh, that's really the place to go for everything. 
Yeah, and again, I want to encourage people that no matter what, we need to have good public speaking skills. You know, I'm not saying you're getting up in front of 10,000 people, but maybe you're getting up in front of your two kids today trying to convince them that they need to go shovel snow. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, definitely check Mickey out because she's got great information. Check out her book, Glamour and the Geek. And, you know, I think maybe I need to talk to Dave also. He'd be another great interview. Yeah, I'm sure he would love to do it. He, I am actually have a speaker school coming up in January in Naples, Florida. What a nice place to be in January. I know. Florida from the 10th to the 12th. And if anyone's interested in that, there's registration. It's open on the webpage or the next one in Chicago in July. So I'd Perfect. be happy to anybody check out any of those things, Deb. Thank you. I love it. Well, do you have any final thoughts you would love to leave us with? Well, the only final thought would be to hone your craft and tell stories. I mean, that just encompasses everything we've talked about today. And if honing your craft is hiring a coach or going to a speaker school or just working on your own by reading books or watching other people, whatever system works for you, I just encourage you to do it because it's a great success skill in life and in business to be a great speaker and to be a great presenter and tell stories. It really is one of the things that they should be teaching in school. So kids come out of college, doctors, lawyers, et cetera. I spoke at Kellogg last week, training the, the pre-meds, pre-laws and everything on how to make investor pitches. And that was through teaching them the skills of storytelling and speaking. Everybody needs it. It's one of the most uh, valuable skills you can have today. So I just hope everybody's inspired to go and perfect those crafts. I love it. Well, again, you can find Mickey at MickeyWilliams.com. I am Deb Creer. I, this has just been so much fun. We could go on forever. Um, I've been having so much fun talking with Mickey Williams. But until next time, everyone have a great day. Bye-bye, Deb. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us next time for more real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. You've been listening to C-Suite Radio. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.